0: Welcome, welcome to Everyday Church. We are approaching uh, the summer here in the UK and over our August weeks we have our friend Adrian Holloway taking us through a special summer series. But today we are in John's Gospel. We're in John chapter 10 from verse 19 to verse 42, the end of the chapter. And as well as us being about to transition from one season to another, so is Jesus in our passage. Jesus is coming to the end of his ministry in Jerusalem and he's about to head out into the countryside for three or four months before he returns for that final, fateful, life-changing, world-changing week of Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And so we have these kind of final encounters with the Jews in Jerusalem. And what we're going to do today is we're going to work through the passage, just breaking it down into chunks and work through it and pick up bits of application as we work our way through. So we're starting in John chapter 10, verse 19. Just three verses to start with. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? These verses kind of finish what we looked at last time and the week before. The the narrative, the story, the telling of the man born blind who'd been healed is still buzzing around Jerusalem. And people are talking about it and they're talking to Jesus about it and to one another about it. And they are challenged. These verses remind us that Jesus constantly brings division. Not because he is judgmental, not because he is critical. Jesus says very clearly, I've not come to judge the world. I've come to save the world. I've come to find people. But the reality was that the man who Jesus was and the truth that he stood for and the truth he articulated constantly challenged people to make a decision. And that brought division. These people couldn't work out. Is he mad, bad or God? C.S. Lewis famously articulated this discussion, this decision that we need to make about Jesus. Let me read it to you. C.S. Lewis wrote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil from hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronising nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. In these opening verses of our passage, this is exactly the debate we are hearing. Is he mad? Is he demon-possessed? Well, how can he be? others say, when you look at the character and the activity of the man. Two things for us to note right now from these verses. One, we should not be surprised when our faith and our teaching create division and challenge. They did in the life of Jesus, they always have in the life of the church, and they will do today. When you stand for truth and when you have integrity in your life that displays truth, that makes people uncomfortable. They either have to dismiss you or they have to respond to you. Jesus saw it and we will see it increasingly over the coming weeks, months and years. But secondly, we must remember that Jesus articulated truth in the context of compassion and demonstrations of power. Jesus was not someone who stood there and shouted at people. As we have seen time and time again, Jesus gets down in the dirt with the broken and the hopeless and the humiliated and the abandoned and the forgotten. And he cares. He brings truth with compassion. And then out of compassion comes power comes healing, comes revelation, comes restoration, comes transformation. That's why these people are struggling. I'm challenged by what he says, but I'm equally challenged by who he is and his compassion and his power. We must learn this lesson more than at any other time in church history. With everything that is going on, with the world moving away from truth day by day, we must stand for truth. But we must stand with a heart full of compassion for the broken and the lost. We must remember we are broken and we were lost. And we must also be open to God moving in power. It was the power of God that brought authenticity to the words of Jesus in in this situation. And that's what challenged people. Let's move on. Verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered round him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Time has passed between verse 20 and verse 21. We've moved on a couple, two or three months Now, we know that John's Gospel does not always follow a linear chronology. But here, it seems to. Here, John gives us some time checks. It was the Festival of Dedication, or Hanukkah. It was winter. Hanukkah starts on the 25th day of Kislev, the 12th Jewish month. That's why in our calendar, it moves around, because Jewish months were fixed at 30 days, whereas ours are not. Why does this matter? Why does John include this time check? Well, he's reminding us that this debate is rolling on. Who are you, Jesus? People are saying, tell us. We can sense the frustration in the question. It's like when a parent is trying to teach a child something, and rather than telling them the answer, they try and tease it out of them all. Oh, "What do you think? What might the answer be? What happens then? And sometimes the child, just in the end, gets so frustrated, "Tell me the answer." That's what these people are doing. Will you just tell us, "Are you the Messiah?" Jesus answers their question, and yet as ever. He doesn't answer their question. He gives them and us a challenge and a promise. He says this, I will not fit in your box. This is the challenge. Why doesn't Jesus just tell them? Well, he won't tell them because he will not fit in their box. He will not simply live up to their expectations. He is the Messiah. We know that. He is the Son of God. He is the one who has come to seek and save the lost. He is the one who has come to restore all things. But he won't answer their question. Why? Because that what they mean by Messiah is not what Jesus means by Messiah. You see, for Jesus to go, yes, I'm the Messiah, he knows he would be fitting into a definition that they have. And that would not only be wrong, it would be harmful. It would mean they missed the point. Remember, John tells us it's the uh, festival of dedication. It's Hanukkah. Well, what does that mean? It means this. The Jews are at this moment celebrating a fairly recent tradition for Jewish history. Around about 165 BC, There was a a revolt in Jerusalem led by Judas Maccabees. The Jews were, as ever, oppressed by a foreign nation, a kind of mix of Greek and Persian. And Judas Maccabees led this revolution that was successful. They won and they restored Jerusalem to their own rule for a small season. And they rededicated the temple that had been abused by this foreign power. They lit a lamp in the Holy of Holies, and it kept burning for eight days on one portion of oil. That's why it's sometimes called the Festival of Lights. That's why Jews light a light in their home for eight days during Hanukkah. It's one of the reasons we have light in our Christmas celebrations, because of this miracle of oil and light that the Jews saw at the time as God approving of their leader, Judas Maccabees, this political leader who led a military campaign to rid them of a foreign oppressor. And do you know what they called him? The Messiah. So when the Jews say, are you the Messiah? They're saying this, are you like him? Are you going to rid us of these horrible Romans? Are you going to step Up As they see him walking in the temple, they're saying, are you going to restore this temple fully to our rule? Are you going to rescue us? And Jesus refuses to fit in their box. Jesus refuses to give them what they want because it's not what they need. Let's just pause a moment there. Sometimes we need Jesus to do that with us. We need him to say no to what we want because he knows we have, he needs to give us what we need, what is better for us. They want another Judas Maccabees. And Jesus refuses because he knows that all of the previous messiahs have actually been pointing to the one true messiah. The Jews have often had people to rescue them. Moses, Joshua, Deborah, David, Josiah, Nehemiah, Judas Maccabees. These men and women have rescued the nation from foreign oppressors. They have established Israel as a political force. They have anointed human and political kings. But God's plan is not just to restore a nation. It is to restore the nations. And the Messiah comes to do that. Jesus wants them to see their deepest need and therefore he refuses to say yes to their felt need. We move on. Verse 25, Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus explains again who he is by this recurring theme of the shepherd that we spoke about last time. Shepherding and sheep are the most common descriptions of God's people and God's leadership of his people. Hundreds of times we have reference to sheep and shepherds and pasture in the scriptures. And in using these terms, Jesus is connecting the people with their history. In the same way they've said, are you the Messiah? And they're looking 160 years back into their history. Jesus is pushing them further back. Jesus is reminding them of their story by using this metaphor of shepherds and sheep. They were always a people, they were always a a, a people of the flock. And he is reminding them, you don't need a Messiah who just restores you politically. You need a Messiah who restores you relationally. Jesus is connecting them with their foundational history, their relationship with their Father in heaven, their relationship with the Good Shepherd of Psalm 23. Firstly, Jesus points them again to his reflection of the character and power of God. You ask me who I am, look at who I am, he's saying. Look at what I do, look at the signs. These signs I'm doing, they don't reflect a political, temporary Messiah. No, they reflect the very heart of the shepherd. And he challenges them If you don't recognise what I'm doing as the heart of the Father, are you really my sheep? Are you really in the flock? Are you really people of the promise? Is it because you're no longer sheep of this shepherd that you are missing the point? This is a challenge, a provocative challenge again from Jesus. But a challenge to draw them back. What does he say? My sheep listen to my voice. My sheep follow me when I call them. Because my sheep know that they are totally secure with this shepherd. They understand this. They know shepherds. They know that a sheep knows the specific tone of the shepherd's voice. And therefore they will follow and come to him over the fields. Jesus is saying this: There will always be powerful nations and empires that will take your land. Whatever Messiah you have, there will always be. Israel is tiny, and politically strategic. It was always being invaded, and it would continue to be invaded. What you need, he is saying, is not that sort of Messiah. You need someone who brings you back into the relationship that cannot be shaken. No one, he says, can separate you from the love of the shepherd. The Messiah has not come to restore you to a land. The Messiah is coming to restore you to a relationship that is unshakable. Let's read on. Verse 31 again. The Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? This healing? That healing? That miracle? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, because they recognised it was a good work, but for blasph- blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Now, a little note on the text here that we've read in the last five minutes. Jesus said, I am, the, I am the, and the Father are one. <laughs> And they have heard that as you're telling us you're God, therefore we're going to stone you. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, in the Gospels, Jesus is very clear that he is God. But here, actually, what he's saying is this. The phrase, I and the Father are one, back in verse 30, actually refers to the fact that the Son and the Father are separate, we believe in the Trinity, but they are both actively involved in the same activity. That actually both the Father and the Son are keeping hold of the sheep. That's what Jesus is saying. Now let's note that. We are secure in our faith, brothers and sisters, not because we hold on to God, but because God holds on to us. Wow. Jesus is calling us to a relationship, not that we maintain by good works, Jesus calls us to a relationship that he has won for us and that God maintains by his grace. I sometimes let go of God because I want to grab hold of other things. In those moments, wrong though I am, God keeps holding on to me. Our faith is secure not because of who we are becoming but because of who God is, praise the Lord. Hence, Jesus challenges their statement because they've misunderstood on this occasion. Jesus answered them in verse 34, Is it not written in the law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. And if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. So he's he's told he's kind of challenged them because they got it wrong. And then he kind of reinforces what they thought he was saying by saying me and the Father are together. But before escaping their grasp, Jesus challenges their theology. What he does here is, I don't know if you've seen the the film Up. It's a bit of distraction. This is a squirrel moment. He distracts them with theology. And the way he does that is he points them to Psalm 82. That's the scripture that he is referring to. Jesus is using the term law here in its broadest sense to cover the whole of the Old Testament. And remember that in the first century, the way you pointed someone to a passage was to quote a little bit of it. It hadn't been codified at that point. You couldn't say, go to Psalm 82, verse 4. What you did was you quoted a bit of Psalm 82 and everybody went, oh, that's Psalm 82. And off they went in their mind to Psalm 82. And in Psalm 82, we read this. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hands of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Notice the bit that Jesus quoted. What is Jesus doing? Well, yes, he's distracting them. He's, making them, he's taking them into this kind of theological discussion to protect himself because his time has not yet come. But he's also pointing them to the very character of the shepherd. Did you notice that? The weak, he he, what does Jesus do? He cares for the weak and the fatherless. He upholds the cause of the poor and the oppressed. He rescues the weak and the needy. Verse 7 here reminds them of what he has said about the type of Messiah they're actually looking for. One who has the character of God. Jesus says, You will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. But what is Jesus offering? Life in eternal. Everlasting life, life in all its fullness. Verse 8 describes in part the actual Messiah who's standing in front of them. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Jesus is challenging them again through this psalm. He refuses to fit in their mold of a Messiah. Not because their expectation is too high, but because their expectation is too low. He refuses to live down to their expectation. God, as Paul has said, wants to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. So what is Jesus trying to say to these first century Jews and to us? Don't try and fit me in a box, he's saying. You are my sheep. You are secure. Listen to my voice. Follow after me. I will give you life eternal, life in all its fullness. Don't settle for some political short-term Messiah when the King of Kings stands in front of you. Jesus is not saying your expectation is too high. He is saying your expectation is too low. I have more for you. And then we have these final verses, verses 40 and 41 and 42. It says, Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptising in the early days. There he stayed. And many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many people believed in Jesus. John's ministry had long been over. He's been dead for numbers of years. And yet, on this moment, when Jesus returns to the area where John had preached, we're told, in that place, many believed in Jesus. It would have been easy for John to have died thinking his ministry had failed. It's so easy for us to think that our service, our preaching of the gospel, our evangelism, our care of others, our witnessing, our prayers are falling on deaf ears and not bearing any fruit. These verses encourage us. Our opinions will rightfully be forgotten. But everything we do and everything we say that has the truth of the gospel in it will bring a harvest. God's word will not return to him empty. A seed that falls into the ground and dies will spring forth in the right season. So our lives committed to the Holy Spirit and given to God and speaking God's truth will bear fruit. What do we know about John? He said, I must decrease so that he can increase. In these verses, we see the fulfillment of that prayer. So be encouraged. Friends, keep going. Keep declaring truth. Keep being compassionate. Keep seeking the power of God. These verses remind us that if we are faithful by the work of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, many people will believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you we are secure because you hold on to us, not just because we hold on to you. We thank you that you long to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. So Lord, fill us afresh with your Spirit. Speak truth to us that we might speak and model truth to others. We ask these things for our blessing, but for your glory, Lord. Amen.